would send your son for us. I gladly count my life as lost, that I might come to If you have your copy of God's Word, let's turn together to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And one of the things I've just realized is I left my sermon in my backpack. Uh, I'll be right back. So, so preachers have nightmares about this. <laughs> when I was uh, serving as the interim pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in St. Louis, I was preaching through the Psalms, and uh, uh, there was a lot of pressure because George Robertson had been the pastor for 15 years, and Parker and I were basically holding the fort down. And so I'm preaching through the Psalms, I kept having this nightmare over and over again, where I say, take your Bibles and open to Psalms. And I'd be like, Psalms isn't in my Bible. Like, <laughs> I keep flipping around. Well, this is pretty much parallel to this. Um, so Colossians 3, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 17. And uh, we've, we've slowed down a bit as we've been working our way through this letter. Um, and part of the reason why is really Paul's central message is right here in Colossians 3. He's, at the end of chapter 2, as you remember, he detailed some of the strategies that the false teachers had proposed for trying to help the Corinthians, excuse me, the Colossians, stop the indulgence of the flesh. Some of those strategies included legalism, asceticism, and mysticism. 
And they took these strategies and mixed them together with faith in Jesus and some, some Old Testament Jewish practices in order to create this homebrew philosophy. But Paul says at the end of chapter 2, they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Well, the question then becomes, what is a value? And Robert explained in the first four verses of Colossians 3 that what's of value is Jesus. The fact that we've died with him, we've been raised with him, our lives are hidden with God in Christ. And so in the light of that, as we saw last time, because of who we are, as those who have died and been raised, and now our lives are hidden with God in Christ, we're to not only put off our sin, but we're to put on Jesus Christ. That brings us to our passage tonight, verses 12 to 17. But before we turn our attention to God's word, let's ask for his help. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace that you continue to show to us, uh, even when we get going too fast and we forget to do things in order that allow us to even bring our sermon into the service. Lord, thank you for your mercy and grace. We do pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, that you would open our eyes of faith so that we might see riches in this portion of your gospel. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Colossians 3, beginning verse 12. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if we're not careful, we can come to this passage, verses 12 to 17, and think that Paul's giving us a new set of rules to live by. And if we could sum up that new rule that verses 12 to 17 might summarize, it could be simply, be good. It, thinking about that over this past week, I, I was reminded of a Snuffy, Sniff, Snuffy Smith cartoon. Do you remember Snuffy Smith? He showed up periodically in funny pages, at least as I was growing up. Uh, this particular cartoon that I remember was Snuffy and his friend are, are standing and they're looking at a sign. And Snuffy says, well, I got to hand it to the parson. And you move to the next frame. And he goes on, he's done a fine job etting and down those Ten Commandments. And below you see that the sign is actually a church sign, which says, rule to live by, be good. But if we're not careful, we, we can potentially think that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul's coming here to us and, and basically editing down all that's necessary for living the Christian life and just simply telling us this new rule, be good. We can hear this as, as imperative, as, as something you must do, and, and ultimately something you, you're unable to perform. But, but what we have to say is that Paul's not saying here, be good. Rather, he's saying to us, live as you already are. And, and those two are, statements are markedly different. 
the first four verses of this chapter tell us who we are. We are those who have died with Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. God looks at us and sees us as having died. The old Adam, the old us, died on the cross. We've been raised with him so that we actually now walk in the newness of life. And our lives are hidden with Christ in God. We already are seated in the heavenly places. God already sees us in Christ glorified. And those first four verses of chapter 3, they, they not only tell us who we are, they actually set the stage for what's to come. Because of who we are, in the light of who we are, as we saw last time, we're to put to death what remains in us that is earthly. Sexual sins, interpersonal sins, those things that would ultimately trip us up, the things for which God is an avenger. But at the end of the section that we looked at last time, Paul used this language in verses 9 and 10. You see it in your Bibles, right? He says, seeing that, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This language of putting off and putting on tells us that, that there's more to holiness than saying no. There's more to the Christian life than simply saying no. Rather, what the Christian life also involves is, is putting on, putting on Jesus Christ, which really means new patterns of living that aren't foreign to us, but are actually already ours because we have died with Christ. We've been raised with him. And we are now, even now, God sees us glorified, seated in the heavenly places. So that to help us understand this, Paul uses this image of putting on new clothes I like the way Eugene Peterson uh, renders this section, uh, starting in verse 9 from his, the message. Peterson had written, don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the Creator with his label on it. So chosen by God for this new life of love, dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. You see, because we have a new identity in Jesus Christ, we have a new set of clothes. We have a new wardrobe. We put on new practices that matches who we now are in Christ. But why? I mean, why are we to put on new practices? Well, to help us see ourselves as God sees us, Paul uses three words in, verses, in verse 12 that, that tells us this is how God sees you. And th these words serve as motivators for actually putting on the new clothes, to putting on these new practices. You see verse 12, he says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Those three descriptors, God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, they tell you why. They serve as the motivation for putting on the new clothes. You see, God sees us as his chosen. Sometimes people will, will denigrate the doctrine of election, which Presbyterians hold, because they say, well, if you believe that God has chosen you from before the foundation of the world, and there's nothing you need to do in order to be saved. There's nothing you need to do in order to keep you to be saved. You can live however you want. But, but Paul actually argues against that. Far from causing indolence in the Christian life, God's choice of us should actually spur us on. That God looks at us 
And he, he loves us, and he loved us before the foundation of the world, and he set his love upon us, not only by predestinating us, but by pre-loving us, so that we live as we already are, as God's chosen children. But God sees us also as holy. He calls you and me, and he says, be holy because I already see you as holy. Be sanctified because I've already set you apart. Apprehend that for which I have apprehended you. Live as you already are, as a holy child of God. But finally, God sees us as beloved. His choice of us, yes, is that we would be holy, but, but also that you and I might know how thoroughly God in Jesus Christ loves you. His love was such that he sent his one and only son to be the atoning sacrifice for your sin and for my sin. He loves you and me. He loves us that much. Oh, how he loves you. And so live as you already are, as a beloved child of God. You see, those descriptors that you are a chosen, holy, beloved child of God, they serve as the motivation to actually live differently. This is who you are. You are a son. You are a daughter that God loves. And so put on the new clothes. Well, well, what new clothes are we to put on? It's interesting that in verse 12, Paul matches the, the five sexual vices of verse 5 and the five interpersonal sins of verse 8 with five new virtues, five Christ-like virtues that he calls us to put on. Before he had told us to kill off anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk in verse 8. But now, verse 12, he calls us to put on these new clothes, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Now, if we're simply hearing Paul tell us here, be good, we'd look at that list and we'd find it impossible because who among us can be consistently compassionate? Who among us can live with, with tender-hearted mercy and kindness all of the time? Or who among us can, can embrace humility as exemplified by Jesus, who, being found in human form, humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross? Or, or who among us can demonstrate the meekness, the, the gentleness, which is not overly impressed by a sense of one's own self-importance? Who's always gracious and courteous and patient, even in difficult circumstances? You see, if we hear this simply as, it's up to you to be good— we're utterly defeated. And then we, have, we might have an excuse not to obey. But we, what we find God saying here is put on the clothes I've already provided for you. Live as you already are. You've already put on the new self. You've already been crucified with Christ and raised with him. You already are seated in the heavenly places. This is who you are. So just put on the clothes. Put on the practices I've provided for you. In Christ, God has granted us, you and me, a new sense of compassion, a new sense of kindness, because, because we've known God's kindness. We've known God's compassion. That's what led us to repentance. In Christ, God has granted you a new sense of humility and a gentleness, because you know that you were foolish and weak and, and nothing, and yet God in Christ, he humbled himself to die for you. In Christ, God granted you a, a new sense of patience because you've known the long-suffering and patience of God in Christ who was not willing for you to perish, but to bring you to repentance. 
These, these clothes, they're, on, they're in your wardrobe. So put them on. They fit. They have your name on them. They belong to you. They're yours. But, but these new, new clothes, these, these new virtues, these new practices, they'll only characterize your life when three other things are added. They, they represent the how of the what. The what are the five virtues. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. The how is bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another. You see, Paul encourages us in verse 13, bear with one another. Bearing with one another, uh, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. So first, bearing with one another. There are times when those around you are difficult and overbearing. But because you are a new person in Jesus, you are able to put up with the other. You're able to bear with the other. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. As those who know the forgiveness of God in Jesus Christ, as those who pray the Lord's Prayer every week, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. We've already been forgiven. Our debts have been So we are called to forgive one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. So we forgive the fullness, the freeness, the the wasteful, prodigal nature of God's forgiveness of us. And Jesus must rule the way we forgive each other. And then loving each other. Paul says, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Paul tells us that this love covers and binds all these practices together. So these three things, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, loving each other, they're the how that make the why possible. They, they make the virtues happen. I, I wonder how different our church would be if, if we put on these clothes I wonder how different our marriages would be if we put on these clothes. I wonder if it would be possible for us to live in the same house, the wife living upstairs, the husband living downstairs, and only interacting over the most basic matters. Is it really possible to live that way if we put on these clothes, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, I wonder if it would really be possible for for church members to come to church every week to be in different Sunday school classes because a long-standing friendship has been broken apart and they they can't see each other without reliving all those things. How How does that fit with forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive? I'll never forget my, my, fir- my first lengthy counseling time. Uh, again, it was at Covenant Church where Parker and I served together back uh, 15 years ago now. There was a couple um, that was really struggling. They had been married for 34 years, and uh, they were in deep issues. He was bipolar and on medication. She had her own medical issues, but relationally, they were super struggling and after five meetings or so, where they were meeting with me, and they were also meeting with Richard Winter, who taught counseling at the seminary, I thought we were making some progress, until one day the wife came in and she said, Sean, I really appreciate all the ways you've been talking about our emotions and different things, but we really haven't talked about what I want to talk about. 
I said, okay, what do you want to talk about? And she reaches into her purse and pulls out a folder, and she says, I want to talk about this. And she throws the, tab- the, the folder on the table, and I open it up, and it's pages and pages and pages of, of things that the husband had done wrong, single-spaced. And he had this hangdog look, and he said, yeah, that's about 10 years' worth of everything that I've done wrong. In fact, every day when I come home from work, there's sheets of paper on the bed listing everything that I've done wrong throughout the day. And as we began to explore those issues and what was going on, she said, well, doesn't God expect us to confess all of our sins, right? We, we say that in the confession of sin, to confess our particular sins particularly. I said, but there's no possible way that we could ever name all of our particular sins particularly. And yet God says to us in his word, um, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. God has forgiven you bountifully, prodigally, whether you've known it or not, whether you're able to name your sins or not, yet God has forgiven you just that way. That's what love looks like. That's what bearing with each other looks like. That's how we put on these clothes. Wouldn't that revolutionize your marriage if you live that way? Wouldn't that revolutionize our church if we put on these clothes? You see, Paul's intention for us is to put on Jesus Christ. We, we, we long for Christ to clothe us, not, not just in our specific virtues as we interact with each other, but, but in our very character, so that, so that as we live, we live as we already are, with Christ's peace and word and name, shaping, ruling, and dwelling in our being and in our congregation. Notice how Paul talks about each one of those things, Christ's peace, Christ's word, and Christ's name. First, Christ's peace. Look at verse 15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. You see, Paul tells us here that Christ's peace, his, his wholeness, his shalom, that, that Jesus embodies, that Jesus brings, that we share as we share a word of peace. That peace has already begun to be established in our midst and in our lives. That, that peace is to rule. It's to serve as a kind of umpire so that, so that when, we, when we fail to maintain the peace of Christ, that he has begun to work in us that peace actually throws the flag on the field. How is this conducive to wholeness and flourishing and well-being? How is this conducive to shalom? Peace, Christ's peace, is not the avoidance of hostility. Christ's peace is not the avoidance of conflict. Christ's peace is, though, uh, has as its goal, ultimately, wholeness and healing, and shalom, and restoration, and renewal. That's what's to characterize us, and that's what's to characterize our relationships with others. We we are called to let Christ's shalom rule, but not just Christ's peace, also Christ's word. Paul says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. What Paul means here by Christ's word 
probably is referring to Christ's message, the gospel about Jesus the Messiah dwelling in our hearts and in our congregation. And this gospel, this word of Christ, rules in our midst as we teach and admonish one another, as we teach the gospel and sing the gospel and pray the gospel, as we live out the gospel, as we admonish one another with the gospel, we find our very lives being conformed to Christ's word. As we live as we already are, we we live with the mind of Christ, our Savior, dwelling in us from day to day, so that by his love and power, he's controlling all we do and say. How does that happen? The word of Christ dwells in us richly. And the result is that everything we do is in the name of Christ. Right? That's what verse 17 says. Whatever you do in word and or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. The, the name of the Lord. Uh, it involves the, the glorious character and presence of our God. When, when we invoke his name, we do so in ways that are purposeful, not, not futile or vain. So when Paul says here, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, he's urging us to bring the, the name of Jesus to bear in ways that are, that are coherent with his character, that invoke his presence, so that in our worship and in our promise-making, in our living, our praying, our parenting, our working, our playing, our creating, in everything we do with our lives, all that's done hallows or vindicates the name of our God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And all of these things, Christ's peace, his, his word, his name, it's all bound together with gratitude. Three times in these three verses, Paul urges us to thankfulness. He says in verse 15, and be thankful. At the end of verse 16, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. At the end of verse 17, giving thanks to God the Father through him. You you see, as we grasp the grace of God that has already grasped us, as we live as we are, united to Jesus, having died with him, having been raised with him, already seated with Christ in the heavenly places, hidden with Christ in God, As we live as we already are, our lives are shaped by a fundamental gratitude. Robert mentioned it in the 830 service, the way the Heidelberg Catechism uh, structures the Christian life in terms of guilt and grace and gratitude. Guilt because of who we are as a result of Adam's fall. Grace that comes to us in and through Jesus Christ. But but having been rescued by, by the redemption of Jesus Christ, we're called to live grateful lives. This is how the Catechism puts it. But we do good because Christ by his Spirit is also renewing us to be like himself, so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all that he's done for us, and so that he might be praised through us. You see, what Paul is telling us here is not a new rule. He's not telling us to be good. Rather, he's telling us to live as you already are, to put on the clothes that God has already made for us, that has our name on it, that's hanging in the wardrobe. And as we live this way, what do we find? We find that we know true gratitude, true thankfulness, because Christ's peace and his word and his name dwell richly in us. One last story. Uh, how revolutionary this is for a marriage. Uh, 
I had the great joy in Hattiesburg of doing the wedding of some, some young people who grew up in the church, Jody Norris and Carrie Lee Revels. Um, and as we went through the premarital counseling and I asked them, what, what passage would you like to, you know, would you like to have the homily about? You know, I'm always open to having you pick that. They said, we want Colossians 3, 12 to 17, because we want forgiveness to be at the center of our marriage and we want Christ's peace to rule. I thought it was an inspired choice. It's the only wedding I've ever done with that passage as the homily. But it's fitting because as believers in Jesus Christ who desire to raise their family within this covenant relationship that their family would have with, with the God who's come to us in Jesus, they knew that they wanted to live differently, to live as Christians. And the way to do that was to put on Jesus Christ, like a new suit of clothes that he's already won for us in the cross. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me, please? Almighty God, we do bless you that your word continues to point us to the glorious grace that you've shown us in the gospel, that in Jesus Christ, you have made us new men and new women, and you've given us a new way to live. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we come to your table and affirm that you are our only hope in life and in death, that we will come as we are, yes, as, as sinners, but as justified sinners, as those who have been loved and those for whom you have died and those for whom you have been raised. And all of these things are not just true about you, but they're true about us because you have united us to yourself by the power of your Spirit. Lord, please grant us great joy tonight as we come to your table and rejoice in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. And so as we prepare to come to the Lord's table, uh, we'll remain seated as we sing Christ, our hope in life and in death. But on the last verse, those who are serving the table can come forward to prepare. What is our hope in life and death? Christ alone, Christ alone. What is our only confidence? That our souls to Him belong. Who holds our days within His hand? What comes apart from His command? Keep us to the end The love of Christ On which we stand Oh, sing hallelujah Our hopes praise eternal Oh, sing hallelujah Now and ever we confess Truth can calm the troubled soul. God is good, God is good. Where is His grace and goodness known? In our great Redeemer's blood, who holds our faith when fears arise, 